0: My name is Peter Thomas, and I'm Director of Forward, the RMIT University Centre for Future Skills and Workforce Transformation. I'd like to welcome you to Skillscast, our podcast featuring an eclectic set of topics that we're interested in, and hopefully you will be too. So join our Forward Development partners, fellows, and guests as we look at all things skills related, whether that's skills gaps and how to address them our view of the emerging skills that define the future of work or some of the technologies that may change the way we think about skills in the future. My name is Peter Thomas and I'm director at Forward, the Centre for Future Skills and Workforce Transformation at RMIT University. And I'm here with Josie Gibson, who's co-founder at the Catalyst Network, which is a membership community of accomplished individuals who apply breakthrough thinking to complex business and community issues. Hello, Josie. How are you?
1: Very well. Thank you, Peter.
0: All right. Based on that brief um, description of you, tell me a bit more about yourself and what you do.
1: Um, I'm somebody who's bounced around from box to box over my career. I've worked in um, large organizations, small organizations, family-owned organizations, entrepreneurial organizations, organizations in all sectors, in a a lot of industries. So over that time, a lot of big themes have come up and followed me around, and I think that's all paths have led to this conversation with you and and the delightful opportunity to contribute through the fellowship.
0: All right, thank you, Josie. So uh, as you said, you're one of our newly appointed senior industry fellows, and one of the things that we've been talking to our fellows about is coming to talk to us and do a podcast or write things with us and and. Josie you and I were talking a bit about doing a podcast and out of the email trail one of the phrases that really sort of leapt out at me was culture conversations are largely a waste of time maybe you could explain what that means.
1: Sure, Peter. Um, look, we've had a, quite a few years of the tail starting to wag the dog quite vigorously and, you know, with the, with the kind of experience I've had, one thing has jumped out at me over the years that um, we're focusing at the wrong end of the debate and organisations, bless them, um, the HR um, function, um, leaders have been sold a story that I think is basically flawed. Um, to focus on culture, which uh, causes um, the real focus um, and scrutiny of behaviours to disappear. So that that's the starting point for my email trail. <laughs>
0: Yep. So, I and mean, we will talk about that in a bit more. So, I did, as is usual before any of these conversations, a little Google Safari about culture, and it will come as no surprise to you or anyone else. There's about forty million things and opinions and stuff you can read about culture, and my thinking on this. Not that I've thought about it, you know, as much as you have, but the whole culture thing is so nebulous. I mean, where does culture reside? Who creates it? What are the real tangible kind of markers of a culture? I mean, you could point to some things. You could point to its negative. You could point to something that's not a toxic culture, for example, which is a big discussion. Of course, it's been going on for a long time. And of course, in the context of the great re. Evaluation, resignation, whichever we're talking about, one of the kind of pointers is that you know culture is created locally for people among amongst the people that they work. So you know, how do we dig our way through that kind of nebulous definition of culture? We know what is it? How does it show up? And if we're not going to talk about culture, what are we going to talk about?
1: Mm, good questions. Well, I'm going to throw another re into the work into the the conversation because when I started really starting to dig into The frustration that I felt and that I saw other people feeling within organizations and across multi stakeholder. Um, collaborations, which is one of my big interests. I came across a book in 2010 called Rework by, you probably know them, Jason Fried and David Hansen. And their definition of culture just really resonated for me. So that's 12 years ago. And they said culture is what results from repeated behaviours over time. And I started to use that as a lens for looking at how these conversations and interactions Um, played out in the workplace and where I landed was culture is actually an output and we can't actually do much to influence it up front it it very much like in my opinion trust respect um, dare I say the term thought leader these are all things that are outputs from others so how useful is it in a work context to focus on culture first and that led me to look at the conversations around values and what that means. And of course, purpose is one of the big overlays. We'll set that aside to one, for one moment. But it just struck me as, again, not useful. The idea that we can create organizational values out of 100 people, 1000 people, a workforce of 500,000 people. It's just nonsensical when you think about it. And when, when I work with people, one of the exercises I get them to do is and you've probably seen variations of it there's a guy called Steve Pavlina that has a list of hundreds of values and I say go pick three that really resonate for you and without doubt um, people come back to me and say that was really hard because it's really nuanced and I say the language has meaning so you need to choose what actually resonates for you so if an individual struggles with it how do we extrapolate that to a, an organisational level? So then the question that raised for me was, well, how do we know whether this is a good place to work, whether people are actually being held in an um, environment of well-being to realise their potential? And that led me down the track to behaviours and, and that's a whole, that was quite a refreshing tangibility for me.
0: Yeah, I read Rework at the time it came out as well and was incredibly impressed with. At one level, those guys were way ahead of their time in terms of the organisations that we're creating. And in fact, they're creating, seems to me, the organisations that we're kind of landing at now. And they've been at that for, you know, I don't know when that book arrived. How long is that? 10, 10 years, maybe that Yeah, month. 12. Yeah, that's right. You know, quite a while ago. I mean, I think they were very foresighted. So, I mean, I think you're right about their. The sort of culture thing, you know, what what we often see is the expression of culture at that kind of broad organizational level, but yet the day to day work of everyone is the day to day work of everyone. It's very rarely about a mission statement. It's about the work that you do every day. So what? The, so in our email discussion, you, a few things and another few things leapt out at me, was that if you're not going to do the culture thing, what are you going to do instead? And one of the phrases that came up was this: you said a loosely held yet compelling vision. Or nested set of visions, which is something that resonates with me. Our little group here at RMIT Forward, we have a ways of working statement that we wrote at the beginning. It was a collaborative thing. And we tried to anchor it in day to day behaviors, but also around a vision of what we wanted to be achieving every day when we came into work. And that it was more just about, more than just about work it's about being is one of the phrases we use it's not just a way of working it's a way of being so what does what does a loosely held yet compelling vision look like for you Josie?
1: Um, well, look, I have to defer to the many great minds that have come before me, and you know, I had the I had the great fortune to spend some time with um, Peter Senge, the author of um, The Fifth Discipline. And again, I still come back to that that vision that he um, outlined on how to hold a vision that the rubber band that you know is you, the creative tension that is part of holding something that is very fuzzy around the edges, um, and. Where I've landed over the years is um, that is the guide for adaptive behaviors. Um, A vision like that, not not an execution plan. And I think there's a a, there's been a dangerous, uh, you know, um, confusion. Um, within organisations about where they sit and so remember in in Peter's example with the rubber band that he said when things get a bit hard, when the context changes, what often happens in organisations is that we pull the vision back to release the tension instead of holding the tension and bringing the organisation or the group along with that. I don't think We've been very skilled, or at least least I haven't seen very many examples of leaders with the the courage to kind of hold the ground in that, that very volatility and allow the creative tension to do the work of vision for them, if that makes
0: sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think you're right. That thing about, and I mean, here we are in another sort of discussion which... You know we've been having briefly on LinkedIn and you know the kind of articles that we share and talk about about the role of leaders versus managers. This is something that came up the other day, and an interesting piece I think in MIT Sloan management review was we need less of the visionary leadership and we need more of the management stuff and I'm kind of compelled by the argument, but equally, you know if you're going to do that thing that Sengi describes, which is holding the tension. You know, you can't necessarily expect day-to-day managers to do that. You've got to have someone who's going to keep all that in check. And maybe that's one of the leadership roles. It's not about, as the article said, articulating the grand vision at all times and being a cheerleader. Maybe it is about doing the detailed day-to-day work of holding that stuff, that tension that you describe, holding that in place. And I guess the other issue is about how you make sure that the organization is doing that. In the right way and how do you communicate wow. that i mean we've seen various some examples of extraordinarily poor communication from leaders that you know achieves its opposite effects as we're seeing you know part of the argument might be about the the great resignation is that you know leaders aren't doing a tremendous job of doing what senga describes which is holding that sort of tension in place but so the other thing we you came up in your email was that you said one of your phrases was an authorizing environment and an appetite for experimentation which is you know easy to talk about and everybody says they're doing it but it's when it comes to the nitty-gritty there's often very little tolerance for experimentation. I mean, what do you, how do you see that, you know, how do you see an organisation or other examples of organisations that do that really well, provide that authorising environment and appetite for experimentation?
1: Well, I have to be honest. I've seen very few organisations that actually have the stomach for that for a range of reasons. And I think there there are inbuilt um reasons when you're talking about really complex bureaucratic organizations i have spent a a bit of time the past 10 years as you know working on um complex projects which are multi-stakeholder etc but the same the same principles um arise and unless you have people in Um, authorising positions authorising roles with the stomach to actually take this on and communicate it as you talked about and and have a set of operating principles around this and go through that process at the outset Um, the punters are going to know whether or not they have that authorising environment and I think um, Australians, if I can just talk about uh, you know our our uh, workforce here for a moment, they have a reputation deservedly for bullshit detection, and what we're really good at, we're gold medal at folding our arms and withholding effort, discretionary effort, which is a whole other topic for you know productivity, and so who's going to stick their neck out when they see the signs, and how do they know? How do they know that there is no authorised environment? They watch how people treat each other. So it's sort of bringing it back to we've got the values and mission statement up on the wall, but guess what? What I'm seeing every day doesn't support that. And so the smart person just folds their arms and just, what, what are we calling it now? Um,
0: quiet uh, quitting quiet is what we're calling it now. Yeah, that's well, right.
1: you know, back in the day they used to call it work to rule or worse. And to me that's one of the great frontiers that we have, um, you know, around what do they call it, multi-factor productivity, the X factor at an enterprise level or at a project level, how the, the people in um, roles of authority who have their hands on the pulse and the decision-making and the money bags, how do we get them to see that this unlocks the magic? It's, it's as Peter Senghi said, it's simple but it's not easy.
0: Simple, but not exactly right. On my um, one of my other safaris around culture and leadership um, earlier on, I came across a whole bunch of quotes by Barack Obama. Um, regardless of what you think about him and which side of the political spectrum you're on, extraordinarily insightful. And one of the quotes I came across, he was running for, for his first um, presidential term, and he said, and I quote, I'm running for president because the time for the can't do, won't do, won't even try style of politics is over. And that's kind of what you're describing, isn't it? The can't do, won't do, won't even try. is that arm-foldy behavior, which is not particular to Australia. It happens the world over, of course. But, and the challenge, of course, is, you know, wrapped up in this, we're not talking about culture anymore. What we're talking about is the day-to-day behaviors that manifest in the organization. And I believe, you know, my belief is, and you may agree with this or not, is we should treat each other in our teams as we treat each other in our organization, as we treat treat our customers and we treat our suppliers. Everybody is treated in the same way. That sort of, and and to tie back to that co-creation of operating principles and the environment for an authorizing environment for experimentation should be a thing we talk about all the time with everyone, not just with a small number of people in the organization. But the the point was that, you know, if you're going to not talk about culture in that way, how do we talk about that? And what kind of language are we going to be using to talk about all this stuff that's around the day-to-day stuff and how we behave? What language do we replace the language of culture in organizations with? How do we talk about it? <laughs>
1: Well, oh boy, that's a big topic, isn't it? I mean, I had this conversation with someone on the weekend who is building a business around problem solving and and I have a fundamental issue with that um, because I don't think it presses the buttons for most people. You're going to get um, happy problem solvers coming out of their burrows in droves um, to play around with problems and I think, you know, um, Appreciative inquiry language about possibilities is where we are right now. And, um, you know, I have a simple definition of, of leadership um, that is outside any positional authority, which is mobilising others around a common objective. And there's just decades of research around the, the amazing things that people choose to do Um, In bushfires, after natural disasters, when when everything um, goes to water, literally and figuratively, people step in and step up and then they might choose to step back. Um, And what's been my experience is that we um, then in organisations, and I'm one of those people that I've dodged that kind of hand that reaches in that says we want to promote you up into X because you've demonstrated this ability to adapt, to lead. I'm not interested in that kind of, I'm interested in where I can actually have impact. And, you know, that's led me in a different path. But I see this playing out in the projects that I'm on. I see this playing out in organisations all the time. We don't provide the runway for people to just turn up and get to work. And, yes, in you know, and this leads to another, back to the vision, and I think, a strategy is is um, quintessentially a creative process, developing and co-developing a strategy that is adaptive and embraced by people. It's not a plan. You know, yes, that comes later. But this first part, this front-end part, is where we've fundamentally fallen over. We haven't invested in that and we've invested in the back end.
0: Well, there's a Margaret Mead quote that appears on every etsy poster you can ever imagine which is never doubt a small group of thoughtful committed individuals can change the world in fact it's the only thing that ever has and that's what you're speaking to isn't it is that small group of thoughtful committed individuals and the challenge is to create those people and how you do that and i guess to back to the top of the conversation culture conversations don't necessarily do that and they're largely a waste of time which is where we started <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> All right. We've been talking for 15 minutes or so. Um, thank you very much, Josie. Um, we could talk about this for hours and no doubt we will in the future, but thank you so much, Josie Gibson, who's co-founder at the Catalyst Network.
1: Thanks very much, Peter. A pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of RMIT Forward Skills Cast. Join us again next time and come and find us on Medium, our home for stories about future skills and workforce transformation. Search RMIT Forward to find us.